The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Welcome to Fire Service Court Radio. This is John Murphy, retired Deputy Fire Chief and Attorney at Law. Uh, for right now, apparently I'm flying solo. Uh, usually we have Chip Comstock, uh, Brad Pinsky, and Kurt Barone, uh, probably all off in the United States wilderness somewhere practicing law, which is always a good thing. And uh, I think Chip may come on depending on what his schedule is. But um, I think what I'm going to do today is essentially do a review of what I feel and I think of my cohorts feel is a um, – sort of the important issues that are facing the fire service uh, today. And it's a recap of, of the other shows and writings that, that we have done in, uh, in fire engineering and then on this blog and on this show as well. So I think that, and the reason I'm doing this is got a, I got an opportunity to um, present um, pressing um, legal issues uh, for the uh, Bellevue fire department, uh, new fire officers and stand by for a second. I'm going to, Chip, I'm going to text Chip, no problemo. And um, so I was invited over to do a class. And so the training officer and myself uh, picked out a theme, several themes actually about, you know, what are the hot issues that are facing the fire service today and, and made a presentation for that. And I, and I think that that's, I appreciated the opportunity to go. The second is when I became a fire officer, we flew by the seat of our pants. And I'm sure that many of you are in that same situation. So we learned the job on the job. We learned the law um, as we got sued or made mistakes and those sorts of things. And it made, a, I think, a big difference in outcomes of litigation that uh, helped us um, do a better job. Um, and, um, you know, one of the reasons that I think most of us are attorneys is it was a good opportunity to pass our knowledge uh, forward in the fire service uh, under a sort of a different uh, me mechanism or modality, as opposed to being uh, fire chiefs, which are two or three of us are. Um, and uh, the law, uh, as a lawyer, sort of levels the playing field um, if you get if you get sued or uh, if you get asked to go teach a class about certain uh, legal issues. So when I was talking to the Bellevue guys, um, we talked about uh, lots of different things uh, like recruiting and retention, discrimination, inclusion and diversity, um, the issues dealing with your firefighters, um, you know, sexual harassment, harassment, uh, bullying, um, those sorts of things. Uh, we talked about the LGBTQ issues. Uh, we talked about nursing mothers in the fire station. Um, we talked about um, if your firefighter gets injured and how do they get back to work? Because uh, one of my responsibilities, is, you know, I wear my medical hat as a physician's assistant as I work a lot with um labor industry, uh, worker comp injuries, and, and firefighters that are injured on the job, and how do you get them back into work? And I've been working with a few other attorneys across the country in litigation 
because the standards that's being used by the medical expert or the fire chief is not the right application of the, of the standard, which we all know is the 1582 standard. Um, we talked about a little bit about presumptive illness and how we can um, um, make sure that our firefighters are safe. And if they do become ill or injured, you know, what do we do uh, to take care of them? Uh, we talked about reasonable suspicion in marijuana. And then finally, we talked a little bit about behavioral health and firefighter suicides. Um, and that's a lot of topic area to talk about. So I was fortunate enough to have enough time to kind of briefly go through those uh, areas of interest and um, talk about the things that are affecting that their department specifically, because I'm a neighbor uh, of their department and I sort of take a pulse of what's happening. And then the other part is just seeing what's going on around our country and reading uh, Kurt Rowan's blog and other articles in uh, fire periodicals and other magazines that affect us. And I would encourage you, um, and I also encourage the new Bellevue fire officers to read uh, because you learn a lot what is going on, not only in your own department, which you should be um, fully aware of, but you have to understand what goes on out in the real world where uh, litigation occurs all the time. So just, we get sued a lot. And I think that uh, uh, we, have, we have found through some research, again, that uh, Kurt Verona's done, is that it's not the Mrs. Smiths of the community that sue us, it's the firefighters that sue us. And so I think one of our biggest defense positions here, uh, and just as a lawyer, I'll give you free advice is, you know, don't break the law and you won't get sued. Um, but we need to do more in the department to um, prevent that sort of litigation. Lots of litigation that we see is uh, mostly on discrimination, um, how we treat each other, which is not very well a lot of times. Um, we discriminate, um, we harass, we bully, uh, we retaliate against people. Uh, we make it as hard as possible, I think, for some people uh, to survive in your environment. And so you as firefighters, fire chiefs, fire officers have a, a duty, I think, to each other, not only to yourself, uh, but to your department and your community uh, to do the legal right things. It's, it's easier to do it that way than it is to try to figure out a way to try to screw over your fellow firefighters and discriminate against them or harass them in, in some, some form or fashion. A couple of the big topic areas that I know that uh, um, that's out and about is the Fair Labor Standards Act and pay. And under the uh, most contracts that we have, uh, there's equal pay for equal work. And so all your firefighters, regardless of, um, of, of race or gender, are, are equitably paid. Uh, where we find some difficulties is in the volunteer uh, areas or the uh, companies that have two hatters there. Like you're a, a career guy and then you're a volunteer. And so that causes some difficulty in uh, how much, you know, how many hours of work uh, do you get paid for? As a, are you working as a volunteer or, as, or are you working as a career guy? And so uh, there's a couple of really good classes out there. I think uh, those of you who are in sort of the crosshairs of an investigation or a complaint that I'm not getting all my money uh, because I worked, you know, eight hours here and I worked 12 hours here and, you know, they only paid me for 10 hours for the whole thing. And that's obviously not correct. So we need to make sure that as um, your department and maybe not you individually as the firefighter. And I know that you do count hours and you keep track of your time, but it's the people that are above you, the HR director, the accounting division, the fire chief uh, should be uh, fairly um, very aware of the FLSA things um, that are sort of 
uh, plaguing certain um, uh, sections of our of our industry. One of the things we talked about in the class was uh, pregnancy discrimination, and, and there's been uh, several litigations around the country where uh, women are uh, who become pregnant uh, basically not afforded uh, equal time and light duty. And I would point to the Davy, Florida case um, several years ago uh, where there was a complaint filed. There was retaliation. It's like a drama. We're all a drama here, like a movie. And um, every element of bad behavior occurred. And the, and the bottom line was um, it was an unequitable or inequitable uh, administration of light duty. And so the um, feds came in, the Department of Justice came in and sued uh, on behalf of the firefighters that were either affected by it or retaliated against for reporting it. And then they, uh, for a period of time, they had a consent decree, which means that you're not really admitting guilt. Uh, but um, you know that there's something going on. And so they put a monitor, uh, which is either a judge or a lawyer in to manage their HR division for a while to make sure that it was equitable administration of light duty. And so um, the, uh, um, the government, our government, um, recently passed what's called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, the PWFA, uh, passed in 2022. Uh, talks about um, making reasonable accommodations for your pregnant employees in the way of light duty, um, light duty assignments, uh, when you go off the job um, on maternity leave, and when you are uh, allowed to come back uh, to the job. And so <clears throat> the uh, sort of the bottom line to that is, is the relationship for your pregnant workers is between the pregnant firefighter and her doctor. And so they make a decision on, you know, what sort of duty that that person uh, can perform. The, you know, the alternative is some um, of your pregnant firefighters may take time off immediately. They say, I'm pregnant. I'm not going to come to work. Uh, others will wait till the last nanosecond in the third trimester um, when they're in labor uh, to say, well, I'm, I'm going to have my baby. I'm going off the job now. So, it runs the gamut from early to late. Um, there is a couple of cases. I think one of the things that we worry about is the toxic um, environment that we work in. And um, there's a case called Johnson Controls that uh, was a, many, many years ago when they talk about um, women working the line in a battery assembly operation. And as we all know, you know, the older type batteries are made out of a lot of lead. Lead is toxic to uh, fetal tissue. And so they basically said, if you're a woman, you can't be on the line. Uh, and that line always made more money, had more overtime. So there was an economic disparate treatment. And so these women sued for the right to work on the line because the responsibility for fetal health actually belongs to the woman and not to the employer. And so that was a seminal case, I think, in women's rights as, as they can work in a hazardous environment. Uh, they take the responsibility. And I know that I've been asked several questions about, well, what if I do have a firefighter who's contaminated by asbestos or by a gas or those sorts of things? I go, you know, you're just going to have to put as many protective uh, mechanisms into place in order to keep them safe. But if there's something happens, you know, the liability is on mostly them, but you'll probably will get sued and have to defend yourself. So make sure that if you're um, in those sort of environments or you have one of your workers that are exposed, uh, that you do good documentation on the exposure and how they were treated and 
how they came back to work and, and all that other stuff. So pregnant workers is one. The other one is that um, there's a um, an, another um, issue dealing with um, uh, your pregnant firefighters that had their babies. They're coming back to work. They um, may need to pump at work um, to express breast milk. Um, and so a lot of the departments don't know what to do about that. How does that all affect us? And what do I have to do under the law to make that, uh, you know, a safe and hazardous free environment? Um, again, there's been some departments uh, that basically just bullheadedly said, if you're going to express milk, you're going to do it, you know, on your own time. And you're going to do it, you know, in some places that nobody can see you, which could be the apparatus bay. It could be the hose tower. It could be a bathroom all the unsanitary places that you could have in the fire service. And a good case to look at is the, the uh, Tucson, Arizona case. Uh, and again, that went um, sort of to the wall, large award, uh, made some um, changes in the way they um, uh, administer the policy for lactating firefighters. And then recently the um, federal government stepped in in order to kind of regulate and to uh, put into play uh, what the rules are. And it's under the, um, um, let's see, the PUMP Act, P-U-M-P. It's called the uh, Providing Urgent Maternal Protections for Nursing Mothers Act. And um, it essentially went into effect in 2022, protecting the rights of nursing mothers to, uh, to pump, uh, expands workplace employees' uh, protections for them. And then um, the, the employer needs to provide certain accommodations uh, for those um, uh, firefighters that are expressing milk, and um, you can do it on the job. You don't. You're, you're compensated. It's just part of your regular workday. You can't be taken off the clock and then come back on 20 or 40 minutes later, however long it takes uh, for the express expression of, of breast milk to take. Um, so it's considered hours of work. So you can't penalize uh, somebody for taking the, those particular breaks. Um, in in your organization. Um, another uh, big topic right now, it's sort of an emerging topic, it's the, uh, transgender and transitioning firefighters and EMTs. And, and I know that um, many of your departments uh, have transitioning employees. Um, you may not even know who they are. And so why would you want to know? That's right, they're your fellow firefighters. Um, they, have, they have the choice to uh, do a transition or um, identify as a certain individual. And um, our uh, responsibility as firefighters and fire officers is to support those sort of um, transitions if there's a medical issue going on or if I, there's an identity um, issue going on that they've identified as whatever. Uh, I think that it's our duty as firefighters and, and good um, citizens is to say, you know, we support you. Um, you know, uh, we prevent the harassment. If we see it going on in your department, you stop it. Um, there's no obligation on anybody to tell anybody that they're going through this. And so sometimes and many times we find out through the rumor mill, um, you know, that, you know, old John Murphy is transitioning. Um, and you can call John Murphy by a different name and go through that whole process. So as, you know, as the Pope talked about, you know, who, who am I to judge? And I think that that's a good statement to say is that we have, you know, those issues going on in the department. Um, and there's some huge litigation out there as a result of that. And just a couple of them, um, a Georgia fire chief terminated after she revealed that 
Despite being born a male, she identified as a female and filed suit alleging gender and disability discrimination. Now, at the end of the day, she lost her case. Um, and we and the lawyers all thought it was just bad lawyering. I'm not sure who, what it was all about. But anyway, she didn't prevail. Um, but it was a, I think it was a good test case test to see what the legal market's all about when we have um, transitioning or um, uh, firefighters uh, or, or changing sexual orientation or identifying themselves as a female and not male or vice versa. So it's a coming on us, I guess, to, um, um, to work through that issue with them, support those, um, those transitioning firefighters. And the law uh, essentially has protected them uh, with a recent uh, Supreme Court decision in 2020, um, protecting gay and transition workers from workplace discrimination. Um, and so what it did was it had to decide, so the Supreme Court had to decide the following question, uh, is it discrimination because of sex uh, and applies to many millions of gay and transgender workers? And they had said, yeah, it's, it's, uh, they, they're identifying as a certain sex, and so they're protected. And so uh, we as uh, employees and employers have the obligation to, if we know, is to protect and support and um like the judge said, who am I to judge, right? Or I'm sorry, as the Pope said. So nobody should be singled out. Um, and I think that uh, we need to just to understand that, that whole process. A couple of other things uh, that um, we talked about in this class uh, is the um, uh, talking about uh, returning um, firefighters that are injured on the job. And so let's go back to hiring um, firefighters with a uh, real or perceived handicap. So you may have somebody who's coming in that has uh, amputation, maybe a military veteran um, who has artificial leg or a couple of fingers uh, missing or a limb missing. And the issue is we cannot discriminate against those um, applying for the job if they can perform the essential elements of the job. And that's one of the standards. The second standard is that, um, you know, the medical physical and even the psychological needs to, to accompany, or not, what's the word I want, to accommodate those um, firefighter candidates that are coming in uh, with a disability. Now, one of the other disabilities that we see a lot is uh, dyslexia. And I know that uh, um, there's a number of firefighters out there who are dyslexic, um, and there's a process. So if you're taking a test, uh, as a new candidate, you need to identify if you need time or a reader or any uh, reasonable accommodation in order for you to be successful. Um, you need to identify that you are, in fact, dyslexic. Uh, you put the uh, department that's going to hire you or is going through the testing process on notice. And then you need to provide um, certification from a, a medical provider that you are dyslexic. The department's responsibility, and this is not a big leap here, is that they need to either give you additional time to complete the exam, the written exam mostly, or provide a reader for you. And um, the uh, one of the interesting things was that um, uh, I was at a class, I did a class, and somebody said, well, we had a um, uh, firefighter who was in our EMT class, and he was deaf and uh, couldn't use the stethoscope, couldn't hear the patient, and uh, we were unable to make a reasonable accommodation, you know, are we going to be in trouble? And um, I'm thinking, well, I think if you, you know, if you identify what the reasonable accommodations are, 
like sound powered stethoscope, you know, the uh, individual has hearing aids, can read lips. You know, there's lots of different things that can go on. Um, but I think what, again, you have to do is to provide a reasonable accommodation for people who identify themselves with, um, um, a, you know, a, a, a defect like hearing issues. So uh, the other part is that either like under the candidate standard in the 1582 um, uh, entry level firefighters, hearing is a, is a huge issue. It's an element that you need to be able to pass a hearing test. And if you can't pass the hearing test, that puts you into a category A. And that is uh, pretty much exclusionary that you're not able to come into the fire service. Where the where our question comes in is, how about if you have a firefighter that loses their hearing during their tenure as a firefighter? They go out and um, you know, get evaluated if you do annual medical physicals. Uh, hearing should certainly be one part of that uh, physical passion or physical part of passing the um, annual certifying exam. And if they can't hear, then our obligation again is to send them to an audiologist, uh, make all reasonable accommodations uh, we possibly can. Uh, but there's a case pending out somewhere down south where uh, pranksters uh, fired off fireworks in somebody's, um, uh, under somebody's bunk and they went deaf as a result of the ear damage. And so we're going to be seeing some of the, uh, can that person come back to work? Does that person go out on a full disability? Is there, you know, any penalties that have been applied to the perpetrator or the prank and those sorts of things? But, you know, for all intents and purposes, it just destroyed this uh, firefighter's career uh, due to a prank. Um, so let's go back to physical disabilities. How about when somebody gets injured on the job, they lose a limb. Uh, they're fitted with a prosthesis in order for them to, you know, live a full life um, and they want to come back to work. So what's our obligation uh, to bring them back to work? And again, it goes into that um, can complete the essential elements of the job. And uh, again, there's a number of firefighters out there that have missing lower limbs that are, have a prosthesis. They have a hand issue or an arm issue uh, until they prove they can't do the job. They should they should receive their job back. Uh, one of the big bugaboos that I've seen and I've worked with a couple of attorneys around the country is if you have a heart attack and uh, you get go to the cath lab and then they put a couple of stints in, you know, to open up blocked vessels. Um, under the NFPA standard, any heart surgery uh, uh, basically disqualifies you under the category A side, which is the new candidate standard. But under the incumbent standard, there's a little fudge room in there. And I think that uh, battling the um, um, the administration or the disability board uh, is a battle between uh, the medical experts. And so the cases that I've been involved in, uh, fortunately, the medical experts have prevailed. Uh, lots of testing, um, you know, ejection pressures, uh, treadmills. Uh, so they meet a certain standard that's in the NFPA standard. Um, and, and so these uh, firefighters have come back. But there's any number of them that have to, you know, file a lawsuit against the organization in order to make that happen. And if you read the record and you interpret it correctly, um, they, there should be no problem. You should not have to go to um, uh, to, to litigate this. This is this is a return to work thing. Um, the other one is um, there's been a few cases on out there, and I know that uh, military action is all up all over the world. And we have any number of our firefighters who are reservists or 
they're, um, you know, National Guard or those sorts of things that do uh, temporary duty or are assigned uh, on a prolonged deployment uh, under USERRA, uh, U-S-E-R-R-A, which is the, the law that requires that the employer um, keep the job available for returning um, servicemen and women that are, have been deployed as a result of their reserve status. And, um, and again, uh, you can read the literature and there's any number of lawsuits, not only in our area, but in the uh, private sector where they will deny um, the employment of a returning uh, veteran after they've been deployed. Uh, the USERA law is sort of, um, it takes, uh, it's not every common attorney such as myself can do a USERA case. It's people that are sort of steeped in that uh, discipline that you need to find if you've been aggrieved by your, your organization and you're returning, returning back to work. Um, I know that one of the things that uh, uh, the lawyers did last time was talking about uh, responding to a complaint. I just want to say that um, I know this is going to challenge a couple of them, but uh, when you're doing internal investigations, so there's a discipline issue going on and you're, you're doing um, uh, internal uh, investigations. And one member of our board said, yeah, the, the internal investigation should be done internally. Uh, because who better than, you know, the investigator uh, knows the department. My only objection to that is that uh, there's lots of different factors in there that uh, may prevent uh, one employee from investigating another employee. And a lot of it is we don't do investigations that often. Uh, and when we do them, we don't usually do them very well. We leave out certain elements and documentation. We didn't talk to everybody. And so, um, you know, my position is if you, and we don't do a lot of internal investigations anyway. We're usually pretty good about uh, not doing them um, only because, you know, we pay attention to our policies and the organizations or our codes of conduct. Um, um, and, and if we do them, I think your investigator needs to be trained in how to do an investigation. Maybe have a couple under their belt that they may have done internally or been uh, hired outside with another investigator in a different organization uh, that at least gives them some background as to how to conduct a proper internal investigation. And the only reason I say this is because if it's my experience, and I know that my other attorneys will say the same thing, if there's adverse action against you, you get demoted or disciplined or uh, terminated, you're going to sue, right? And so unless it's clear-cut evidence, and you're probably still going to sue, you know, taking your chances in court, at least for an award, if not getting your job back. So the investigator needs to be, you know, meticulous in documentation, evidence gathering, preservation of evidence. It's just like a lawyer would do when they're, they're um, uh, working on a claim against another party or what the police would do when they're doing their investigations. So it has to be very meticulous. It doesn't have to be fast. It just has to be thorough and collecting evidence and all those sorts of things I think are, are important. So um, I agree to disagree with my cohort attorneys that, uh, outside investigators may do a better job. Um, and again, only because we don't do a lot of investigations, uh, we're actually not, um, we're not very good at it. So, uh, but again, I think it's incumbent on the leadership uh, to put policies and codes of conduct in play uh, that protect the employees. And so you don't have to have uh, these internal investigations. And even dealing with your outside customer uh, who files a complaint against you for, Lots of different things, and we have some some stories out there. 
Um, a couple of things uh, electronically. Uh, we talked to the Bellevue uh, fire officers about social media. Um, I think the big case that uh, I brought up, and I know that this is a huge case, is the Vanessa Williams case with Kobe Bryant and the helicopter crash. Uh, she won a $28 million judgment against the county uh, because firemen, uh, firefighters, EMTs, police officers were taking pictures of the remains and distributing them, them on the Internet on their social media sites. And so um, the governor uh, basically put in the law saying that it's a crime uh, for first responders to take pictures unless you have a, an official purpose to do that. And certainly if you distribute that on your social media, uh, the criminal element uh, takes place. So a $20 million or $28 million award against the county is a sizable amount. Um, and I think what our obligation is, is to preserve that sort of element of the things that we see as firefighters and EMTs are horrific. Um, and so, you know, we don't want that stuff out on social media. And there's a number of states on the East Coast that, again, they have made it a, a, a criminal act for for us to take pictures of people who are deceased, uh, who are dying, uh, dismembered, those sorts of things, and spread them on our social media. And social media is... Um, I think that uh, who was the attorney, not the attorney, the reporter. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, he said it's like social media is like career suicide. If you uh, put, put and post stuff on your uh, your social media that deals with workplace issues, workplace incidents, responses, and those sorts of things. You're making uh, racially disparaging remarks, homophobic report, re- remarks. Um, you know, with the, the war going on in the Middle East right now, there's a lot of uh, fire up on the social media sites. Uh, my advice is to stay off uh, those sites. Don't identify yourself as a firefighter EMT uh, on them. Don't link your job to your social media site. Site and just you know, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but we want the sensational aspect of it, but we also need to remain neutral in a lot of these um, issues. And you know, my best advice is don't post on social media unless it's family or you're taking pictures of going to Hawaii, or a birthday. But, you know, putting uh, antagonistic, homophobic, racist stuff on your social media sites, and there's a hundred of them or more, uh, is going to get you in, in trouble and, um, and fired. And so there's lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of cases out there uh, where people have been terminated as a result of that. Sort of the, the last thing we talked about was uh, behavioral health and firefighter suicides. Uh, Jeff Dill um, does a great job in uh, identifying those uh, the uh, tragic events that have happened across the country. Um, I think that we're probably at more uh, firefighter suicides than lines of duty deaths uh, this year, and that's the way it's been for the last several years. Um, Much of it has to do with prevention and recognition that something uh, with your firefighters has changed. Uh, there's lots of training out there. There's a lot of experts that can identify and help you identify in your organization, you know, who's at risk and what to do um, um, to help them themselves, right? So time off, therapy, counseling, medication, and that sort of stuff. Uh, and so I, I think it's incumbent on us um, that we identify. And I know that Paul Combs did a, one of his illustrations uh, where two firefighters are sitting in the engine. One firefighter had a sign around his neck and said, I need help. And so the other firefighter said, I wish it was this easy. 
to identify those that are in need. And so our we always go out and help other people. Uh, that's our job. We recognize people in distress. We recognize when people are going to hurt themselves. But we don't pay attention to our own, our own people or our own health needs. And so if we're in a position where we need help, well, we need to reach out, you know, to your spouse or your partner or your fellow firefighter or somebody uh, that can, you know, basically um, help you help yourself. And a lot of resources uh, are available out there that I think we need to identify and take advantage of. Um, even uh, many departments may have a chaplain program. You can talk to your chaplain. Uh, many departments have a peer support program. You should talk to a member of the peer support um program um some departments have psychologists on board um certainly use those resources in order to uh, help you or a fellow firefighter or somebody is having a, a difficult time in your organization based on calls uh, based on family issues based on um, financial issues i mean there's many many causes of why people uh, commit suicide and it's a sort of a progressive uh step from you know, an issue that becomes depressive or you start to use substances and then your performance falls off and people are noticing that, you know, you're not the same person as you were six months ago. But I think that we have found ourselves afraid to ask and we need not to be that way. Because again, if you, we take people, care of people in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and, and again, we need to offer that same service to um, uh, members of our, our organization. Uh, I think the last thing uh, we talked about um, is uh, the use of marijuana. Uh, I know that, and then this sort of ties back into the behavioral health issue. Uh, there are some um, experimental um, programs going on using uh, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, using ketamine, uh, using marijuana as a therape therapeutic modality. Um, the feds right now uh, are trying to get and hopefully the successful is to get marijuana off a category or class one drug, um, which ranks up there as impermissible. Uh, the federal government, uh, like if you have a CDL driver's license, which we don't, thankfully we don't have, um, if you're a marijuana user, you're unable to drive. You're unable to get a federal uh, commercial driver's license medical certificate. And so, um, but there's a lot of good application, I think, in the industry and a lot of research is coming out. Um, using, you know, different modalities in order to treat um, mental injury and, and mental health issues. So um, if you are in those therapeutic programs, you need to talk to your counselor about your job. And if you um, can do something a little bit differently, then that would be the recommended choice until the law gets changed. Um, but again, um, your, your uh, organization uh, should have a reasonable, suspicious, uh, reasonable suspicion policy about how that whole program works. So somebody comes in impaired and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, marijuana, it could be alcohol or it could be other drugs. Um, you have a step-by-step -step process that you identify, uh, you confirm, you transport for testing, and then you have some sort of a policy on, you know, do they um, uh, go to therapy? Uh, are they off the job for 30 days? Do you have a last chance agreement? And there's a lot of, instead of just going to termination, because I always say that, you know, when you have an experienced firefighter or an EMT, you just don't want to terminate uh, their services to your organization because you spent a lot of time and money and, and invested in their career. Um, the other thing to think about, too, is, is uh, when I talk to my wife, Dr. Beth Murphy, we always talk about 
um, you know, what you're looking for is behavioral changes. So, um, and we need to take advantage of, you know, you know, if I come to work and I'm always the gregarious guy in the beanery and I'm drinking coffee and raising hell in there and all of a sudden I come to work and I'm sitting in my bunk room all by myself, that's a behavioral change. And so we need to recognize those behavioral changes and identify what we're going to be doing uh, to address those uh, particular behavioral changes um, as well and, and to prevent uh, any sort of suicidal attempts by um, firefighters. And I know that I don't want to go back to the suicide part because we're on the treatment part, but um, many times, and unfortunately, um, you know, going back to Paul Combs' sign, you know, I need help on the, you know, around the firefighter's neck. Uh, a lot of times when you talk to fire chiefs or fire officers and somebody, one of your members commits suicide, it's like we had no idea what was going on. We had, and we, what did we miss? And so I think the, the, the lesson here is we can't miss anything, right? We got to be vigilant. Uh, we have to be attentive. We have to be helpful. And so I think that that's uh, part of our jobs is, as firefighters, as human beings, and as, um, as fire officers. The, um, some of the questions that came out of the uh, class I was giving uh, talked about some personal liabilities. You know, if, if I am charged with harassing, sexual harassment or assault or those sorts of things on a firefighter, what's my personal liability? And uh, there is a case uh, in um, downstate Washington, down in Longview, uh, one of the paper mills down there, there's unrelenting harassment uh, that went on one of the employees. And so she filed a lawsuit against the department, you know, his organization and the supervisor himself. And what ended up happening at the end of the day is the company basically got uh, dismissed from the claim and the supervisor was solely responsible for these sort of um, uh, stalking issues, harassment, discrimination that was 24-7. So when the employee was at work, uh, the behavior occurred there. When the employee went home, uh, through texting, telephones, electronic media, that whole thing just kept going on and on and on. And so, you know, and she went through the process of telling them to stop. Uh, they didn't stop. So, yes, the answer, the short answer is yes, there is potential for um, um, personal liability. And I think, again, uh, you shouldn't conduct yourselves in, in that particular manner. The other one, uh, we talked about off-duty behavior. You know, what, I, what are my firefighters uh, is rested in a bar, uh, drinking and, um, and fighting? And so, um, you know, or what are my firefighters filming pornographic films in a uniform and distributing on his social media site? I mean, who has a policy for that, right? Nobody does. And so uh, you should, in addition to your policies, uh, have a code of conduct. And a code of conduct basically describes what your actions will be off duty in a bar, in a restaurant, you know, those sorts of things. And so you can, um, you know, discipline or terminate somebody for violating your code of conduct. And I recommend that every department has one uh, because we can't create a policy for everything. Uh, we try. And so, uh, and, and most of the time I call them, you know, one day wonder policies is we create a policy in order to address one thing that we didn't have a policy about, and now we have a policy about it. Nobody commits, you know, basically violates the policy. So it sits in your books for 20 years and is never activated. 
So the code of conduct policy is a good sort of global policy that that kind of picks up all of the things that you couldn't even think about uh, when you're creating your policy. So um, and so there's a, a number of uh, agencies that will create policies for you. Lexapol is one. Not that I'm promoting them, but they have a good product. Uh, and you want to kind of take a look at, at those sorts of things. Um, I think I'm done. And so um, there's you know, any number of things we could talk about, but I think I hit the basic, the high points of the class. Um, and I only wish that as, you know, I kind of moved up in ranks uh, other than learning from um, my bad mistakes and other people's bad mistakes, which is not a bad way to learn um, uh, because it's a lesson remembered well. Um, I think these classes are, are valuable to new employees, um, new um, and promoted uh, officers, all the way up um, through the chain, all the way uh, to the fire chief. And so um, I know that uh, our th other three uh, attorneys do a lot of lecturing and writing. Uh, my um, advice to you is to listen to what they say. Sometimes I get frustrated because, you know, I go to a place and I teach a class and then the neighboring department commits the violation that I taught about uh, and they should have attended the class. You know, and it's just like, it makes me scratch my head because it's like you should learn um, not to commit these violations. You should learn not to violate your policies uh, and, and learn from other people's mistakes. We do that in the fire service when we're fighting a fire. Um, and I know that, uh, and unfortunately, in New Jersey, the two firefighters died in a shipboard uh, fire um, uh, event. Um, should have never been in there, right? That's what everybody's saying, that. Shipboard firefighting is a dangerous profession, and there's professionals out there. Uh, I know that when I did a study in Long Beach and Long An Los Angeles, uh, they have professional firefighters that are ex experts, Coast Guard as well, in shipboard firefighting. And when I was in the Navy uh, on a ship, you know, we practiced almost every day. And so because it's dangerous. And so if we're not used to that sort of environment, um, you know, people die as a result of that as an unfortunate tragedy for the two firefighters and for the departments and their family, but lessons learned, right? So a lot of departments are saying, oh my God, you know, I have a port facility in my district. I better do something about a shipboard firefighting um, training and practice and whatnot. So uh, we learn in the fire service. We should learn on the human the HR side uh, that we can get into a jam uh, in no time. And it's going to take us, um, you know, two or three years to get out of it, uh, especially if there's a lawsuit. So without further ado, um, I wish everybody happy uh, holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Uh, be safe out there, and uh, hopefully next time you won't even you won't see just my lovely face, but you'll uh, see my other three cohorts uh, as well. And I just want to say one thing: that I am now a new fire commissioner, um, elected position. Oh yeah, uh, in Fire District 38 in Washington State, which surrounds the cities of North Bend and Snoqualmie. Um, it was an unchallenged race, so I was the sole candidate, and I had seven people vote against me, um, probably not my friends, but I had over 2,000 people who did vote for me, and I, they're all my friends. So, all right, you guys take care, uh, be safe, and, um, and uh, we'll see you next month. The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Firestore makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, 
Explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's Gift Center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more.